You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. Spread out a little bit more geographically as well. Um, you know, a lot of it. I'm in Oregon, um, but I'm from the East Coast. I'm from Rhode Island, and I lived in Madison and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for about 12 years. Um, so, I'm just trying to bring in more, uh, more ge- geographical. You know, and mm-hmm. you know that the Midwest is near and dear to my heart as well. Um, and having dealt with the you know, with the Wisconsin uprising in 2011 and, you know, that type of thing. Um, I like to connect back to that. So. Okay. All right. Want to get into it? Yeah. This is the something rather than nothing podcast. And this week we have Vico Alvarez Vega, who is a, uh, an illustrator, author, creator of, uh, publications that she's done. Uh, Rosita, uh, gets scared. Um, also, uh, scholar or a scholar, um, mm-hmm. and, um, she's also worked, uh, in the education arena. Uh, she's based in uh, Chicago, uh, on the South side of, uh, Chicago. And I uh, just wanted to welcome you, uh, Vico to, uh, something rather than nothing. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Ken. Yeah. Uh, the first question we ask guests is um, to kind of go back and uh, ask what what you were like as as a young as a young child, and were you always interested in art, or is it this type of act? It was a type of an activity that that you picked up along the way. But um, yeah, what were you like as as a young child? No, I was definitely always interested in art. I think I just wasn't sure where to take it maybe um but when i was in middle school i was actually in a visual art class i was in band orchestra and choir all at the same time so i've always been super interested in just exploring any sort of creation that i could get my hands on um and yeah eventually the realities of academia hit you in the face and yeah. you 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 realize that or people tell you rather that uh you can't prioritize art as much because it's not as valuable as math or science or you know any other subject that's considered a core subject but yeah i've definitely always just liked art in general and i i eventually just ended up gravitating towards visual art painting and drawing around maybe uh, college or so, but it was very much like a hobby. By the time college came around, I wasn't really, I wasn't really prioritizing it at all. And what, I, I see that at least, you know, from some of your some of your posts and within your work, that, that that's been a struggle for you is like c- kind of finding the space uh, to do it and to having kind of like it affirmed from the outside. You know, if if your art that you're creating is affirmed by others it can kind of help propel you along because you're saying, well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing, but everybody's telling me I'm supposed to be producing art. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll do it. It's, it, it, fe- it, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, it feels to me like you've had the really kind of when you, when you've gone into that artistic process or prioritizing, you've kind of had to do that on your own. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I try to weave this into my stories um, as much as possible, whether it's my personal stories or my comics, this, this idea, this uh, lack of appreciation, essentially, for the arts. Um, and that basically means nobody really shows you 
um, how to make a living off of it, for one. And when you're somebody who grew up working class, um, you know, a kid of immigrants, art is not the thing that's going to make you money. Art is not the is not the reason that your family crossed the border and risked their lives for you to do. You know, they came here for you to carry out a profession. Um, so in terms of my journey towards art, it's been very much just like taking risk, but it's also been necessary risk. I felt because art was something that was always really healthy for me. So there were moments when I just wasn't doing well mentally. Um, and you know, the one thing that I could do was draw. You know, maybe I couldn't get out of bed because, you know, work was just really tough or X, Y, Z thing happened in my family or in life. But the one thing that I could always muster up the energy to do is, you know, just grab a little sheet of paper and doodle. Um, So for me, I just feel like the health benefits of art, and this is something that I integrate into my workshops, are so important that. It's I I have to just promote it in whatever way that I can. And that's kind of how I ended up shaping my comics. Um, They address emotion a lot. They address health a lot, especially in young people. I I, I noticed that in there and I just want to just, you know, put put a pin on that. I I I think it's uh, in in having read your work and and seen it, I, I think what's so powerful to me is the emotions in it. Right. And I know you're trying to connect with the reader of trying to express that with it's within the drawings or with the words that you use. Um, and I know, um, you produce it in, you know, in Spanish, uh, in English, if I'm correct. And, mm-hmm. you know, just like the evocative aspect. Um, I, I really think it's such a, a nice way um, to connect um, with the reader, but I really feel that as a as a reader, when I the, the emotions come through, and for me, that's an area which I think can be difficult for people to articulate. And one of the pieces I really love about your art is that using that or having emotions be the lead is not an easy task to pull off, and I and I think that you do it. Did did you did you look at when you were creating the work to just say, hey, this is the place I'm going to proceed from when it comes to, you know, the emotions or how the characters are feeling? Uh, it was a bit of a process. So when I first started my comics, I was actually just you know recovering from just a lot of mental health issues. And I started drawing just my own stories, really. But through this character scholar that I created. Um, you know, there's nothing that people know better than their own stories, right? So it was just the easiest thing for me to pull out of my brain and put onto paper. So it was personally therapeutic for me. And then once I started developing the character scholar and I gave her friends, um, this was around the time when I was actually in graduate school to be a teacher. And I took a class specifically on social and emotional learning, which I had never heard about before. And it was actually that class that really helped me, like, refine my language and refine the goal of my comics. It really helped me figure out how can I make something that's not just 
me, an adult, creating something that I think young people will like, but create something that will actually resonate, something that they will actually remember and can apply uh, to their lives. And that's how Rosita Gets Scared came about. Um, the comic zine about Rosita, a young undocumented little girl who's learning what it means to be undocumented, is learning about uh, deportations, um, these really heavy topics that are just a part of her life. But yeah. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think I think your work's important. That's another uh, draw uh, for me. And I know in your work that, um, you know, Chicago is important to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I I sometimes ask guests about like the physical locations, you know, that they create and how that impacts what you're creating. But what, what does what does Chicago mean to you and how does it impact your, the art that you create? Man, I feel like there's bits of Chicago and everything that I make, even though my stories are actually about me growing up in Texas sometimes. Um, but the, so the zine Rosita gets scared, for example, was created for a group here called organized communities against deportations. I had actually been talking to some of them about, creating material that was informative but for younger audiences you know they have plenty of know your rights material and things like that but it's for adults for the most part so the language is obviously different um and there's they just didn't have much for young people but young people are everywhere you know the parents who are fighting their deportation cases come with their children um even whether it's a legal office or whether it's an organizing meeting there's kids around so the whole idea was to create something that could educate them on what was going on around them instead of leaving them in the dark instead of sort of just letting them sit on the side and kids see and observe everything right so they're going to hear these conversations that their parents are having so the ideas for the, for us to not just like ignore them but to have them be a part of this informative process that the parents are going through as well um so that's the main reason i ended up creating the zine it, it was for it was for chicago really and i had no idea that once i would post it you know online that i'd be getting orders coast to coast um and it kind of just blew up from there but it is kind of a duh situation you know if chicago needed it of course california would need it of course texas would need it um having to handle the topic of undocumented migration teachers uh need it it's everything is just not good right now that there's so many bad policies that people need the tools to educate the young people being affected by it. Yeah, and 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 you bring up you know uh, teachers and the education system. Uh, as I mentioned, you I work with in uh, out in in Oregon um, w- with teachers, and I've worked with teachers and support staff, um, you know, for for 20 years, and it's 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 really a complicated uh, dynamic, you know, because. Teachers, uh, you know, at, at in some areas, in, in some, uh, you know, they have the opportunity to be more overt activists or take advantage of the opportunity or, or push to mm-hmm. become more activists. And then, you know, 
teachers are come from the same population as everybody else. They can also, you know, be in the way or need education around these issues in, um, you know, the changing demographics of, you know, the public school system, uh, you know, over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years, it really creates a lot of challenges, um, you know, with, with, within, within that system. One of the things I'm hopeful about is I do see a lot of education. I do see a lot of resources, at least where I am, um, towards uh, teachers and support staff to learn things about, you know, the social mo emotional learning uh, and learning about where, um, you know, th their students uh, come from. Mm -hmm. You're in you're in uh, Chicago and Chicago's heating up again when it comes to <laughs> labor, you know, resistance. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and, you know, potential, uh, you know, teacher strike in, in, in Chicago has been in the news, you know, when in the past fighting, you know, the austerity policy of Rahm Emanuel, the, that horrific um, politician for a certain amount of time that you had there. Yeah. And um, so are you in a position to give us a little bit of a vibe of what how things uh, feel when it comes to that, you know, that that struggle or what you see around the city uh, with regards to Chicago teachers? Yeah, I mean, Chicago is a union town, just like the chant goes. And Chicago is a super political city. Um, there's a lot of people in the city who are who will say, like, Chicago's got Chicago. Like, we got each other. Uh, we're this, like, really big city in the Midwest that sometimes feels like a small town because we all function within the parameters of this city. So when it comes to politics, whether you're involved or not, you know about it. Whether you're involved in politics or not, you know that the teachers are going on strike. Um, and what's happening right now is the CTU has really set a high bar for activism, especially labor activism in the city, because um, their issues go beyond a union contract. Their issues go beyond uh, salary and benefits. They do a really good job pushing for smaller class sizes, uh, pushing for more uh, nurses in schools, librarians, uh, these things that don't just involve self-interest. And, and it really is for the community. And what... Um, the union that supports the staff at CPS, so janitors, um, bus aides, and other folks who actually assist a lot of special education students, what that union has done is essentially come together with the CTU for the first time in years. And they are really just growing each other's strengths. They're growing the strike numbers. Um, the CTU is notorious for going on strike um, and with SEIU and the support staff coming in, it's becoming a much bigger story, I think, because it's not just about the teachers now. Now we're addressing the, addressing the entire ecosystem of the schools in Chicago. So it's pretty cool to watch. Um, it's, yeah. Go, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. It, no. it, I mean, it's, it's, so it's so exciting to see. And what you mentioned about that growing um, solidarity with the, with the employee groups, um, I, I think that the style of bargaining taken into account, you know, the needs of the community, the needs of students in building those larger coalitions, which make efforts like this and long term, you know, growth uh, and, and militancy of the of the labor movement really in, in, in inspiring um, to to see. So 
do you see this building up even more because of that partnership that that you're seeing? You've seen just this this might look different in in its scope, and also the the maturity of the relationship with the community. Um, I don't want to assume this, but I've I've seen it as an authentic connection. You know, it's not perfect. That's not my point, but an authentic mm-hmm. connection with the needs of the community. And uh, do you see it in a similar fashion? Um, the teachers union and teachers connected to the community? Yeah, definitely. And it's it feels like it's in large part because they've promoted the leadership of a lot of teachers who are from the community, right? Their own children go to CPS school. So you sort of inevitably involve the community when they when they live and work within the same, you know, few blocks of the school. And with the inclusion of the support staff, I think that's super interesting because it's also opening people's eyes to uh, members of the working class that aren't considered quote unquote professional. Uh, So custodians, for example, and it's really, I think that it's pushing teachers to also be, you know, more inclusive of the staff and it's pushing the staff to really understand what they have in common with the teachers. So that's also been really cool to, to see. Um, since I was working for SEIU 73, I was able to see some of those conversations and it was, it was just cool to see it all come together. Yeah, I um I, I work with a, a group of nine unions in the region um, outside of Salem, Oregon, and uh, I, I I found it to be a blessing that I I represent about um, a thousand members who are teachers, and I also represent a thousand members who would be called you know classified support workers, education support professionals. So mm-hmm. one things that I one of the things I love about my work is that I'm able to work with both of those groups instead of operating in a very clumsy fashion that does not build power by <laughs> treating everything differently. And um, it's, it's, it's a journey for a lot of folks to connect as workers within, you know, a professional, uh, you know, the professional atmosphere. Uh, but when it happens, I, I just see what workers are, are able to do. Mm-hmm. The I want to go back to um, about your your creative process, and it sounded to me when you were describing, uh, you know, the the question is this: is why do you create? And mm-hmm. what I heard from you, it sounded like you know you had certain needs, like for yourself, where you're like, this is something I'm gonna do. It's gonna make me feel better. I'm dealing with a lot. This is like, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like breathing as an artist. Like this is yeah. what I'm gonna do. Um, but also, I think you're responding to, you know, kind of external realities and political realities that have been foisted upon us and that that we're dealing with in the political climate. So I do want to ask you the question directly. Why do you create the art that you create? I think initially I thought of art and my creation process as a service so not not in the sort of mechanical sense of the word but to be in service of community to be in service of you know anybody around me who may need something and i think that some of the best art really does that for people whether you're in service because um uh, 
you make somebody feel a certain way and that feeling just needed to happen or you're literally in service and, you know, I'm creating a zine that can literally be used in schools to be a teaching tool. So I think that's kind of how I've been able to give my work direction is that if I feel like it's going to contribute to the communities that I care about, then I feel like I'm making good art. And then for me personally and just my own craft, I mean, I'm always going to challenge myself. So I don't, I don't like staying in one place for too long. I don't like staying in one skill level uh, for too long. So for me personally, it's, it's cool to just continue to practice my craft and have an audience there who's ready to receive it. Um, no matter what level I'm at, you know, I look back at some of my old comics and I was like, wow, this is real rough. <laughs> like <laughs> This was, this was just straight pen and paper. I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing on Photoshop. Um, and now I'm able to continue to create work that people share and they use in the classrooms while practicing my craft. You know, I, I, I know how to use illustrator now. Um, and for me, that's therapeutic, too. I love learning. Um, and I think all people do. All people just love learning new things. So that's sort of how I, I, how I view it and how I give my work value. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Um, we're speaking with Biko Alvarez-Bega, uh, and she's um, uh, talking about a couple uh, in publications, um, Scholar and Rosita Gets Scared, which is uh, Rosita Se Asusta, I think, um, in, in, in Espanol. Um, how, so we don't miss this. This is an important, uh, Rosita Gets Scared is an important uh, piece of art for many people across the country to get in their hands. How do they get it if they want it? You can just visit scholarcomics.com, and that's scholar, just like the word scholar. And there'll be a link right there that's a, that takes you directly to the store. Uh, thank you, because I really want to make sure I don't miss that, and we can uh, speak specifically, you know, and, and, and get that um, there. I had uh, sent you a question, Vico, uh, and I had seen and, again, got excited about the work that you were doing. Uh, I know you had done some research on the Black Panther uh, Fred Hampton. And um, I, I had I had heard a lot of sh I could tell you right now, I, I worked with um, a good friend of mine, a comrade, Ed Sedlowski, uh, whose dad uh, was uh, a, a big figure within the steel workers um, in the 70s, the democratic movement within the unions. Uh, the Sidlowski's taught me a ton about Chicago, Chicago labor history. And, and I, I had conversations about Fred Hampton and, uh, I know you've done some research on Fred Hampton. Um, and, uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, if you could, if you could tell the listeners about, you know, what Fred Hampton did, um, uh, about your research and what his story and, you know, the horror of his assassination at the hands of the FBI and the Chicago Police Department. Um, who was Fred Hampton and, and what does he mean to you? Yeah. So when I was in graduate school to be a teacher, I was specifically focusing on being a history teacher. And 
more, even more specifically, I wanted to get my hands on more curriculum that addressed Chicago history. And there really wasn't much, um, especially for middle grade, which is what I was looking at. So I just sort of started to piece my own uh, research together to create accessible curriculum on activists in Chicago. And you you won't you don't got to Google much until you find Fred Hampton. And he was the chairman of the Black Panther Party here in Chicago's West Side. A super young activist. He rose up very quickly because of his ability to build solidarity incredibly effectively. He was a part of the Rainbow Push Coalition and was really building bridges between uh, black folks, white folks, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, and it was becoming super clear in the growth of the Black Panther Party and general movements for poor people here in Chicago around the time when the Black Panther Party was organizing, you know, Boricuas and Humble Park were also organizing, the South Side was organizing, and it, it was in large part because of his ability to just get along with folks and and his like strategic mind on how to do it. Um, again, very young guy. I believe he was just 21 um, when the FBI had been tracking him already for years. And so had the Chicago Police Department. And at 21... In the dead of night, his home was raided on the premise that the home was uh, hoarding guns, uh, something along those lines. And he was shot right then and there next to his pregnant wife. And it it was a huge hit for Chicago at the time because everybody knew him. Um, so when Fred Hampton was murdered so brutally, it, people just really all of Chicago took a hit and what then happened after that was of course the Chicago PD and the FBI did anything possible to try to erase his memory to this day actually you'll occasionally hear um, you know folks maybe trying to start an initiative to rename a street after Fred Hampton and you'll hear the Chicago PD protest um, in City Hall it's very interesting. So, so for me, he just like, I, I always love a lot of my work revolves around, um, trying to figure out how to build bridges, trying to figure out how to communicate, how to tell stories across communities. So he just really stuck out to me when I was doing the research and the fact that his history was being erased stuck out to me, which kind of just encouraged me to continue to put his name out there and lift up his story and his impact on Chicago. Yeah, I want to thank you for that. Um, and it was, it was very inspiring to me. I've I think it, it, it it's in my mind, uh, it strongly connects to a lot of the work that the Black Panthers had done around uh, urban areas, um, California and the Bay Area as well, where, mm -hmm. you know, the, the 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 breakfast programs in feeding kids that that didn't come from some altruistic, you know, you know, Ronald Reagan as governor and whenever he was in governor in the 60s, it, 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 it came from the Panthers who were looking as a way to, um, you know, get kids food and mm -hmm. have programs after school for them. And I think that's uh, why, at least in my mind, for a long time, that's why they were such uh, a threat 
um, they were connecting and providing important resources um, to to the youth uh, in those cities, and folks did not, you know, want that to happen. I think what you're struggling against it, in, in my, in 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 when I've looked at these stories, is you know a desire to erase that history. You know that these folks were fighting for the people, and that the ideas of the school lunch program and et cetera has its genesis in the work that they were doing. Yeah, and in in addition to the school lunch program, um, one almost very Chicago-specific accomplishment of his was also his ability to build bridges and peace packs with Chicago street gangs. And I think that was also a big tipping point when, you know, the FBI and CPD labeled him a major threat. If you're somebody who's able to communicate, relate with the street gangs in a way that you can find peace with them, that's incredible. Chicago, to this day, is known for its violence. And a lot of people don't talk about where that violence comes from. And it does come from street gangs, a lot of it, unfortunately. But when you talk about these gangs, sometimes you're talking about 16-year-olds. Again, Hampton was 21. He was still a young guy. So his youth, I think, made him super relatable um, to members of gangs here. Um, they're, they're still high schoolers. And that is incredible. Um, and I, but I, again, I think that's what made him a threat. And it's something that we still struggle with today. There's definitely people in the neighborhood who are activists and they do actually have very good relationships with some folks who are in gangs, but that's not something to be ashamed of, to be completely honest. And if we're going to talk about the realities of the city, you have to talk about some of the things that people are afraid to talk about, some of the things that we're ashamed to talk about, and that includes our violence. But it won't it won't get fixed if we don't address it head on. Yeah, and I do appreciate. It. I did not know um, that 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 component at all about about Fred, and and um, it definitely adds a piece where you could see the the you know. <laughs> The threat, you know, I, where's yeah. the threat come from? In my mind, the threat comes from what you said that, you know, maybe there's greater power in doing that. But there's also, and this might sound a bit odd, uh, there's also the threat that if he was successful, there'd be, you know, less crime and maybe a need for less policing if the people were, exactly. <laughs> if the exactly. people were, you know, <laughs> connecting with each other and agreeing not to harm each other and starting to recognize you know, some of the source of their major problems. Yeah. Um, so for whatever the reasons, uh, he definitely, um, as you know, uh, emerges as, as such a threat to be um, to be a target. Um, so uh, there's a lot of pieces of, of your art, um, you know, that that, you know, be seen as political. And I always find the language clumsy, right, because I, I, I think politics feeds into a lot of things. But. Uh, the main question, the big question I have for you is, uh, what what do you think is art? What is art? That is a million-dollar question. Uh, I guess for me personally, art is literally everywhere. It's the creation, I think, of anything that leads to 
building communities that leads people to just think more about one another, whether it's making connections through art that has us discuss our emotions or whether it's art that is, you know, quote unquote, political uh, protest banners, um, or even if it's more traditional museum art, uh, museum, again, quote unquote, worthy art, um, that just encourages you to think more about the human existence. That's that's sort of how I see it. If it can push a conversation, if it can push us to think more about our values as people, that's that's kind of what I consider art. And I mean, the reason I say art is everywhere is because literally I think it's everywhere. So, um, you know, a professor bringing together um, their discussion topics for the day is a form of art. You're weaving together conversations with your students. Um, uh, math is a form of art. Like math is actually very heavily rooted in our in natural processes across across nature. Um, I was a math GED teacher for a while, so I kind of nerded out on, <laughs> on how patterns and leaves are actually the ways in which some mathematicians came to famous formulas, etc. Um, but again, this is all like humans just observing the world around them in their existence. So that's kind of how I view it. And that's why sometimes when I do my own art, you know, I do comics for kids, but I'm also doing these illustrations about Fred Hampton. Um, I have worked as a teacher, but I've also been a union organizer. Um, I definitely, you know, will have people who are kind of like, you need to focus yourself. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> like, this is all just a part of me exploring as much of my surroundings as I can and I love it like I love being a math GED teacher I love being a comic teacher um I love music my partner's a musician and we also just to throw another thing that I do we throw these parties here in Chicago uh, that really revolve around how to use nightlife as a communal space, not just a space where you go and, and drink with your friends. Um, have it mean something more. Have it actually build communities and neighborhoods. Um, and I think that, I mean, I highly encourage people to try whatever it is that they want to try. And I think art is actually one of the best ways to do that. Um, there's so many different tools that you could dig into. It's kind of like, why not? Yeah, there's so much in, in your answer there and it's, it's really inspiring. I, um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, the experience of art, uh, one of my approaches is to really tell other artists like how it, how it impacts me and that it is really good and that it did change my day. I think a lot of your artwork uh, does that for me. And is 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 really inspiring. Um, I've seen uh, that you you have uh, an active component where you look to encourage younger, you know, younger kids, younger artists, mini artists to 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 create. Do you do you view it as a duty that you know that you're an artist to? I don't. Know, create create other artists with your time do you see that as a duty or where, where's that come from in a way like i definitely think that all adults have a duty to support young people at any point in time whether you have children or not 
um, we definitely one of one of the components that I sometimes work into my workshops about my practice is the concept of adultism. Actually, um, adultism being a, f- a form of oppression towards young people, those not considered adults, and the oppressor is the adult. So our government systems all function through adults, right? Um, Our education system is run by adults without the input of the young people who are actually being taught. And it's it's because of this idea that young people just aren't mature enough to know what they want for themselves, which in my opinion is a total lie, but it's more about providing them the tools and the space to be able to even think critically about what it is that they need in their classrooms or what they need from their parents. Um, And instinctually, there's a lot of things that they do know that they need. They know they need love, for example. They know, even instinctually, they, they know that they'll need books at some point. We all we all gravitate towards reading in one way or another or observing shapes, um, observing the world around us. So, but, but those are things that aren't, that young people aren't always given the space to say. So a lot of my workshops and a lot of the things that I talk about are just the, the, the need to be able to give young people more agency over their lives. And we can do that by, as adults, being able to show them maybe the things that we didn't have or the, the, um, the means to think critically, essentially, the space to think critically. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, no, it's certainly, it certainly does. And um, just, just the use of your language, I mean, I, I, I actually completely agree with you as far as, you know, uh, this, this, this lie of, you know, Look, you have as you get older, you have life experience. You can learn things. You can do a lot of things. You can have access to different types of information. You can have experience. But goodness gracious, that does not make you an expert. It doesn't make you a responsible person um, mm-hmm. when it, when it comes to interacting uh, with with youth. And you know, are there differences? Yes, of course, there's going to be differences. But I think it's one of the strange forms of oppression where it's like. You absolutely have nothing valid to say until you're an adult. And sometimes mm-hmm. it feels that heavy um, in society. And I, I look around when I hear kind of that attitude and I'm like, well, what we're talking about here is differences and not absolutes. Um, and if you look at the, you know, the climate, the, the, the climate change, you know, the resistance that's coming from from students, I think what you're really seeing is. Uh, you know, kids calling adults on their complete and utter bullshit. And um, it's it's very inspiring. Uh, You know, that doesn't mean, you know, have a parliament or a Congress, you know, it's filled by kids. Although nowadays, (laughs) why not? Why not? I mean, seeing what I've seen. um, But so I really connect um, with with what you said. And, um, you know, kind of I, I think we miss a lot of the ideas of kids, a lot of the creativity a lot of this, I don't know, discussions. I can't imagine if we had like facilitated discussions about what to do about issues, what great ideas we'd get from those who are younger. It's, yeah. I, I, I think, I think we do a lot better policy wise. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, 
and 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 I appreciated that um, in in just the connection to you know what what duties you know adults or artists have towards um, towards kids. Um, got a couple more questions. Uh, one, the one which is the name of the program is why is there something rather than nothing? I always invite guests to, or usually invite guests to answer it a couple ways. Um, you know, it's a philosophical question. It's like, why are there, you know, why are there things that, um, why is there things rather than not being things? Why are there something rather than nothing? But also for artists, there tends to be a, an angle to get at with, um, the creative process. And by that, I mean that, um, you know, Vico, when you sit down, you get a you know blank sheet of paper and you're looking to create something, it, where does that come from? I mean, does that, that's something that you create? Does that come from other things? Um, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? Hmm. I feel like every artist probably has their their moment of writer's block, their moment where they do see that white sheet of paper and they're like, oh, snap, there is nothing. Um, but I know for me, the moments where there is something, it's it's because I do I feel like the community is calling for me to do something. And I don't I don't mean just me personally, but with my finger on the pulse of the community, I can hear the moments in which they need um, more representation of little brown girls, uh, the moments in which they need to hear about more Chicago activist icons, uh, the moments in we just, when we just need a certain message delivered to us and Unfortunately, because of the current administration, um, those moments just seem to be more frequent because it feels like so much is being taken from us. So the moments in which I feel like I'm most creative and like I need to do something is because I can see my neighbors around me having something taken and we got to do something to bring back their humanity and if that's going to happen through art and illustration whether it's going to happen through comic books or music then I'm more than happy to see what that something is that I can contribute uh and and, and again that's that's that that's inspiring and I, I really felt feel the connection um uh and I can I can hear you as an organizer the connection from you know <laughs> what you're producing its impact on people and kind of like this reciprocal uh, relationship I definitely see that in 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 the work that you do um the last piece is really um is is Again, as you can tell by my appreciation of of the work that you create of your art pieces, I want other people to connect um, to them. And I'm a, a supporter of yours on the Patreon um, app, uh, where you you know you can have individuals, you know, support uh, your work at uh, different levels. But can you it open? This is open to you. Um, and I know you had mentioned Rosita gets scared in the in that website. Could you mention that again and just just uh, let listeners know again how to connect to the the work that you do, either if it's specifically within you know within Chicago, but also you know for everybody else. Yeah, so my main page for my web comics 
is scholarcomics.com and I also have a Patreon page that is is in support of Scholar Comics but also supports general illustrating that I do and also workshops that I sometimes get invited to. It helps me buy tools. Sometimes it helps me buy flights um, to get to the universities that I go to. And that link to the Patreon is just patreon.com slash Vico Alvarez, V-I-C-K-O-A-L-V-A-R-E-Z. Otherwise, I post a lot on Instagram, so you can also follow me on Instagram at Lavico, L-A-V-I-C-K-O. Yeah, and I really appreciate a lot of the the work that that you share there. I, I look forward to it. I had seen um, an illustration you had done of, of Fred Hampton and, and maybe a quote that was right with it. And again, very, very inspiring, uh, very powerful uh, work in, for me, very necessary and um your connection to, you know, uh, you know, ed- the education, education process and, you know, advocating, um, you know, for, you know, vulnerable humans and, and young humans uh, facing, you know, horrors of you know, deportation or just the feeling and the emotions that you express of, of being scared to help them out uh, with that is, is such a is such a wonderful uh, thing. And that's why the the I really want the listeners to you know be able to experience and, and connect to really the resources the art resources um, uh, that you share um, Vico it's it's been a, a great pleasure um, to to talk to you and to to actually learn a lot <laughs> from you and uh, <laughs> you know learn about you in 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 your process but really a lot of what you had to say just learning for me uh, about you know history and about the art, artistic process. Um, and that's why I, I like these conversations because it kind of propels us to interact in a different way. And um, I, for me, it helps build a, a larger movement being you know, art, uh, political, uh, education-wise. But I do wanna thank you uh, deeply uh, for spending your time and I very much look forward um, to your work in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. I super appreciate the conversation. It gives me uh, a little bit of perspective on just how much I've done. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to talk about it. If you talk for a little while, then you're like, well, I've done a few yeah. things, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, Vico. And um, it, again, it's been a great pleasure. Have a great evening. All right. Thank you. You too. You are listening to something rather than nothing.